So that makes it a, uh, an interesting market to be invested in. Nick, thank you very much indeed. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo right now, the Nikkei 225 is creeping ahead. It's up about half a percent at the moment. The ASX 200 in Australia also turned positive, up 0.4%. South Korean stocks moving further ahead, up three quarters of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a gain of 75 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Stay tuned to Back Chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The weather forecast mainly fine, very hot and dry. Maximum temperature around 35 degrees. It's going to be windier with occasional showers and slightly lower temperatures in the next couple of days. The very hot weather warning and the red fire danger warning are in force. The temperature right now, 30 degrees, 61% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.31, here's Andrew Schwoski with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Heavy rain and strong winds have knocked down trees and walls and caused flooding and power outages across South Korea. Typhoon Namnor made landfall in the early hours of this morning after passing Jeju Island at midnight. It was downgraded to strong from super strong. RTHK's correspondent in Seoul, Frank Smith, gave this update. Kinnor made landfall at Koji Island at 4.50 a.m. this morning. Koji Island is uh, on the south coast of South Korea. It's a shipping center, and those shipyards were shut down as the storm approached. It's a massive storm, 400 kilometers wide, up to 200-kilometer-hour winds at that time. Ferries and flights have been delayed and canceled. Up in Seoul, we got a lot of rain here and flooded the street and the Han River. So this storm, this weather movement is really hitting the entire country. The administrator of the Hong Kong Superbike Club says there should be clearer guidelines over which roads are risky for motorcyclists. Douglas Thompson was commenting after a motorcyclist thought to be, thought to be holding a learner's permit was seriously injured on Sheko Road on Sunday. Under current rules, learner cyclists are restricted from certain roads, such as highways, and cannot take passengers, but are allowed to drive home. Thomas said Sheko Road had sharp bends and blind corners. He called on motorcyclists to educate themselves about risky roads and those that learners can't access. It's not very accessible or readily available to find this information online in terms of which roads are prohibited. So I think that's something that could do with being updated. Like, for example, if you're a loner rider now, it's not that easy to find out which roads are prohibited and which roads are accessible. Pretty much have to have a look on the road to see if there's a sign prohibiting you to ride. So maybe that's something that could be addressed as well. Canadian police say Damien Sanderson, one of the suspects in the mass stabbing in Saskatchewan, has been found dead. A senior police official said the other suspect, Damien's brother Miles, is still at large but is believed to be injured. Rhonda Blackmore is the commanding officer of the Saskatchewan Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Miles Sanderson may have sustained injuries. This has not been confirmed. But we do want the public to know this because there is a possibility he may seek medical attention. This brings the count of this tragedy to 11 deceased persons, 19 injured and 13 crime scenes. 
Ireland's Data Protection Commission says it's fined Instagram a record 405 million euros for breaching regulations on the handling of children's data. The commission probe centered on the appropriateness of Instagram profile and account settings for children and the firm's responsibility to protect the data protection rights of children. The company said it planned to appeal. Instagram is owned by Meta, which was formerly known as Facebook. Last year, the commission fined another meta unit, WhatsApp, then record 225 million euros for breaking data protection rules. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the British uh, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss becoming the new Prime Minister of the country after her victory over the former Finance Minister Rishi Sunak in the ruling Conservative Party's leadership election. Ms Truss is due to be formally appointed as PM by Queen Elizabeth later today, succeeding Boris Johnson and will then begin confirming ministers to the new Cabinet. She's promised to act quickly and come up with a plan to tackle the energy crisis gripping the country. She'll also be facing a series of other pressing domestic and foreign policy issues. After 9.15, we'll look into the rules and regulations for learning to ride a motorcycle following a serious accident on Sheko Road on Sunday morning. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And we're now joined on the line by uh, Professor Alistair Cole, who's head of the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. Uh, Mark O'Neill, uh, author and China analyst. And also uh, Keith Moody, who's a representative of Conservatives Abroad in Hong Kong. Um, good morning to all three of you. Perhaps, uh, Keith Moody, we could start with you. Hello. Good morning, yes. Thanks very much for joining us. Good to have you on the programme. Um, just looking at the result then of the Conservative Party leadership election. So uh, 57% for Liz Truss, uh, 43 for Rishi Sunak, which I think that was a bit uh, narrower than was expected. Um, would you say that that would have been reflected in the preference of uh, your members here in Hong Kong? Um, well, that's, that's a really interesting question. I think, uh, first off, I just do need to make a slight uh, uh, amendment, if I, if I can. Yeah. Um, actually, um, I, I'm not, strictly speaking, uh, a member of the UK Conservatives abroad. Mm -hmm. um, we're, uh, we're not... We're, I represent a group of British expats who are not actually uh, affiliated uh, to the UK Conservative Party. Um, but with that out of the way... I guess from my communication so, with, with people, it seems yeah. as though, um, yes, I mean, the, uh, the general feedback that I've been having is that it's, it, it has represented in the, in, the, uh, in the results that, you know, fairly close, but definitely with a preponderance towards uh, list trials. Yeah, towards yeah. Okay, so so just to clarify then, I mean, you are representative of Conservatives abroad in Hong Kong. Uh, no. 
No, okay. Um, because, uh, all right, then we must have uh, misread what it says uh, on the website uh, in that case. But um, you, are, you are obviously uh, Conservative Party supporters. Uh, that is correct. Mm -hmm. we, um, we're very much a group. Uh, we're a society that's of, uh, you know, British expats who are uh, conservative-minded. Right. And so what, what is it about Liz Truss? Why, why was she preferred to Rishi Sunak? I think for kind of uh, multiple reasons, I mean, in terms of the overall sense that we were getting here is that, um, you know, it, it's, it's like they say about governments, uh, governments uh, lose power rather than um, opposition win. And I think from that, from that sense, it was, there was just a general sense that Sunak, uh, Rishi Sunak was really not... Um, in the sense to really to be trusted. Uh, it, so he'd been in government, he had had a cabinet role, a very senior cabinet role, obviously, as uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and as such, he, um, he, he felt that we, the, the general feeling was that he'd basically kind of um, blotted his copybook with the way he uh, went about uh, resigning and you know, causing this. Uh, leadership mm. contest. So he was blamed essentially for bringing down Boris Johnson. Yes, I mean, there, there was a lot of there was a lot of popularity for Boris Johnson, I mean, notwithstanding his uh, the manner of his uh, departure. But essentially, he uh, yes, he was he was very well regarded. Mm. Right on, on Listras. Do you think that she'll be a new Iron Lady? Uh, sorry, uh, do, do you think she will be another Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher? Uh, well, she's trying to portray herself very much in that in that manner. Um, whether that's going to be the case is, you know, obviously remains to be seen. Um, she's certainly tough, uh, very tough talker. Um, that's for sure. Very robust. Um, but you know, one of the things that it's quite clear is that at a certain point she will actually be, um, you know, trying to cast her own uh, kind of uh, shadow and she will want to kind of get out of Boris Johnson's shadow as fast as possible. There's been a lot of commentary out about how she likes to um, present herself as, as uh, the next Thatcher, but uh, as I say, that really remains to be seen. Okay, uh, we'll get to Professor Cole and Mark O'Neill in just a moment, but could I ask you, um, what would you be hoping to see from the new UK Prime Minister as regards uh, relations uh, with Hong Kong and with mainland China? Uh, well, to be honest, um, you, know, you know, I think that there's got to be a little bit more understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of really the dynamics of what is going on here. And essentially, I would hope that, um, you know, she would, she would actually kind of really get a lot more expert opinion. Mm. Uh, so she, she's good at, 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 you know, talking tough. But uh, again, another comment that's been uh, made certainly in recent days is that she does tend to shoot from the hip. Mm. And I think that's generally the case of not just over this part of the world, but um, 
happen in other parts of the world too with, uh, with her recent comments. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, Alistair Cole, what are your expectations now for uh, UK-China relations? Okay. Uh, th- thanks. Th- thanks very much, and welcome, everybody. I think it's um, it's an interesting it's an interesting one. I mean, if we look at um, some some sort of hard facts, and we see, you know, China has become the most important uh, source of UK imports, uh, you know, re- replacing Germany. There, there are strong de facto interdependencies between uh, UK. Uh, China and Hong Kong. Um, you know, so in a way, there are obviously uh, sources of tension. Uh, those don't need to be elucidated too much. But I think, but there are also uh, sort of underlying and uh, overarching sort of dependencies. So I, I expect that um, this, it's a little bit difficult to predict anything precisely at the moment because of the nature of the uh, of the international security situation and indeed the hangover from the, from the health situation. But I, I think, you know, the, those longer-term relationships are going to need to be looked at again. And I think, in a way, the, the point I would want to make with, uh, with UK politics is, you know, Boris Johnson was uh, forced out, if you like, as our previous uh, speaker said, in July, uh, 12th of July, I believe. We're now uh, 6th of September, so it's taken two months. And there's been two months of not rudderless action, but certainly two months of uh, fierce competition within the Conservative Party. And maybe those two months were extremely important, given the nature of uh, the international challenge, given the nature of the energy crisis, uh, given the nature of the uh, domestic uh, situation. So I think, and we've only got two years, two years until the next election. Mm-hmm. And this does say something to me about, the, I suppose, the mechanics of internal uh, selection of our of our prime minister in in the uk uh, so uh, i think that those longer term relations and again i agree with your previous speaker about shooting from the hips somewhat i mean i think there needs to be there is a there is always an, a new opportunity when a new political leadership comes in but there needs to be i think some wise uh, decisions taken quite quickly uh, that are reflected and that unify not just the conservative party which is clearly important but that also are intended to uh, to provide some respite for this difficult period we're going through. So um, in the next few months, um, there will really be like a cost of living crisis and even perhaps a, a long recession. Um, do, do you think Liz Truss's uh, uh, focus should be on the economy rather than um, uh, international relations? I think uh, that's a good question. I think the two uh, are a little bit difficult to disconnect, of course, because uh, at least part of the, the, the problem at the moment is is linked to the uh, the conflict uh, in, in Ukraine. So, I mean, uh, it's a bit difficult to distinguish the two, but there is most certainly, uh, I think there's a short, a medium and a longer term perspective. In the short run, it's, you know, getting through the next few weeks. I mean, if she does nothing now, there's going to be, you know, there's, there's a little feel of the 1970s about this. There are strikes. Uh, uh, either taking place or announced from, you know, a very wide range of different uh, groups of people within society. There is a, a general fear of inflation. Inflation is higher than it's been for, well, ever since I can remember, well, certainly 40 years or so. Um, and so, the, the, you know, the, the, there's an immediate short-term crisis. But in the, more, in the medium term, you know, the, I think there has to be a... It's perhaps the opportunity to take some difficult decisions uh, in relation to the main issues that are uh, uh, the economy, energy, uh, Brexit, um, and uh, relations with um, uh, allies and uh, and, uh, competitive rivals elsewhere in the world. I fear that two years might not be long enough, but I think, and that's 
longer term, of course, that, you know, um, is this all uh, just a, a rehearsal for that uh, election that will take place in two years' time? Um, well, it is obviously one sense, in one sense, but I think there's, there's a serious need to to uh, to. to to reconcile, uh, to reassure people while moving ahead with some fairly, probably interventionist types of policies in the short run. Okay, uh, Mark O'Neill, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us again. Uh, wh what do you think her main priorities are going to be then? Well, I, I agree with, uh, with Alistair. I mean, <coughs> the domestic issues in front of her are so urgent. The inflation, the energy uh, price increases, the widespread strikes, uh, you know, enormous popular discontent. This has to be her priority for three months or six months. So she will have much less energy to deal with uh, foreign issues, with the exception of Ukraine. Uh, you know, Boris Johnson was identified by the Ukrainian president as the most strong supporter among the Western countries, and uh, Truss has said that she's going to carry carry this on. So. She will certainly devote some of her energy to uh, the Ukraine issue. And, of course, that's bad for China because uh, President Xi is going to go to Uzbekistan uh, later this month for a major regional meeting. He's going to meet Mr. Putin there. And while China insists that it's neutral in the war and it's not uh, taking any part in the war, the view from the Western capitals is that it's, how should we say, pro-Russian neutral. And uh, the West would like to see China much more actively lobbying uh, Mr. Putin to negotiate or to end the war in some way. So, just to answer your question, yeah, domestic issues will occupy her attention for the next three to six months uh, with some time devoted to Ukraine and uh, Russia. Right. Do you think that she will, um, you know, offer tax cuts? Uh, people say that she won't have a hundred days to to think about new ideas, uh, but perhaps ten days. Well, yes, she's promised tax cuts. I mean, she's promised a very expensive package of measures to support those people, uh, you know, the poorest people in society who are going to be the worst hit by the energy price increases. And so, yes, she'll have to deliver on that, and that will certainly be extremely popular. But, of course, this was one of the big issues in the, in the, in the debates uh, with Sunak, because Sunak said, how are you going to finance this? And so, at the moment, it seems it's going to be financed through borrowing. Well, as you know, the, the UK government has a high level of debt already during the COVID pandemic. It, it spent a great deal of money supporting people and companies who were hit by the COVID pandemic. So it's going to make this debt even greater. But, yes, she'll have to do that in the short term. Uh, Keith Moody, so um, in terms of uh, Liz Truss's uh, record, uh, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, she, uh, she was for a time at university a supporter of the Liberal Democrats before she became a Conservative. Uh, uh, during the uh, Brexit debate, uh, she supported the Remain camp. Um, she now says uh, uh, leaving was, uh, was a good thing to do. Um, I mean, is, is there confidence, do you think, within the party that she can be relied on to maintain a consistent position, if you like? Uh, well, it's, you know, every uh, one of the most one of the most uh, famous UK prime ministers, uh, Winston Churchill, obviously famously crossed the house twice, um, and yet he is absolutely revered 
Yeah, you talk about Winston Churchill. Yes, mm. as a, as a uh, he's absolutely revered as a conservative from school. Mm. I think obviously you know Liz Truss has certainly talked about her journey, her political journey, if you will. Um, you know, and we all kind of you know generally tend to explore these uh, these possibilities and options. And as far as uh, Brexit's concerned, um, to be quite honest, I was of the view. Uh, back in 2016, um, but, you know, what on earth have the UK actually done? Um, but the more and more I delved into the, the discussions and kind of the scenarios and things like this, the more I became convinced myself that actually, by and hold, by and large, that actually um, I understood what Brexit was about, the sense of the country, what that was, what that was going through. And the kind of the general experience over the past 40 years uh, of of the previous uh, membership of what was originally the uh, the EEC, the European Economic Community, which morphed uh, eventually into the EU. So, you know, we all go on a, on a on a journey to a certain extent, and I think obviously, again, time will tell, and it's going to be very much well. The party membership has certainly put their faith in Liz Truss to be a Conservative, as she said, to to she's been elected as a Conservative and she will govern as a Conservative. So uh, we shall see. Right. Um, she only won uh, by a, a, a narrow margin. Uh, now, according to The Economist, um, um, uh, which said that Ms. Truss won the contest in large part because she is cheerful, and she's an optimist, uh, whereas Sunak is a little bit of a, of a pessimist, uh, very serious-looking. Do, do you agree with that? Oh, well, there's no doubt in terms of, you know, in that measure that, you know, they are very different personalities. Um, and right now, obviously, with the situation that the UK is faced in, and obviously the cost of living crisis is, you know, front and centre and, and immediate, people want to, I guess, Certainly, the, uh, it would seem that the, the Conservative Party membership certainly would have a sense of well, you know, we would rather, you know, we'd, we'd kind of really like the idea of some there being some hope, um, you know, and the, and the and the picture that uh, I feel that Sunak presented was really he's just going to add to the woes. So, um, you know, personally, you know, we all want to see that there's going to be. Something is in some light at the end of the tunnel, and I, yes, I think to a certain extent, Liz did trust. Liz trust did convey that, um, and it, to a certain extent, gave at least a good portion of the membership that feeling that there was a certain level of continuity with, obviously, uh, the better part of the continuity with the Johnson uh, premiership. Uh, Professor Cole, yeah, I mean, she was, of course, uh, elected by the membership, the 170,000-odd uh, uh, party members. But in the previous five rounds among Conservative MPs, uh, uh, Rishi Sunak had come out ahead of her each time. Do you think that's likely to cause a problem for her uh, working with Parliament going forward? That's a very interesting observation. Um, whether it, I, I'm not sure it will create a problem, but it does very clearly demonstrate that amongst the MPs at least, uh, Rishi Sunak had the, uh, had the advantage. Um, I mean, uh, 
So, and I think it, it, you know, it, it, it makes us look back a little bit about the nature of that, of that, that leadership process. You know, I mean, it, there are, as you say, 170,000 activists of the Conservative Party. Uh, she was elected on a, on a minority of those activists overall, if you, if you take the number of people who voted. Uh, there's a very small proportion of the electorate. I think if you look at the, so, I mean, on the, um, on the, on the parliamentary party side, I think, no, I think there'll be a rallying to the new prime minister. I'm sure of that. But if you look at the more general challenge in public opinion, I mean, there was a very interesting YouGov poll that was done yesterday. And it, it's, it, 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 you know, it, it sets out the nature of the challenges ahead for Liz Trust because, you know, the, the, the majority, including of conservative voters, did not, do not think that uh, Liz Trust replacing Boris Johnson is a particularly uh, um, uh, enthusiastic uh, perspective. And so, and she, you know, she's got big challenges to face. She doesn't actually have a popular mandate. She might get one in two years' time, but, but she doesn't at the moment. Um, if you think back a long time, I mean, there are many examples of conservative politicians, John Major, for example, who went on and won a, a smashing election in 1992, but that's going back a long way. So I think there's going to be a question about her, I wouldn't say legitimacy, because we, you know, the, these are the rules in the, in the UK, but there's going to be a question about her, um, the, the necessity, not just to push through resolute reform, but also to be sure that she carries the, the nation with her. Right. Um, what, what could she do in the next two years, um, well, at least before 2025, when there must be a general election, um, to, to get this um, popular mandate that she needs? I think there needs to be some firm choices taken on, uh, you know, the, I think obviously, in the, as I said before, in the short, medium and longer term, in the short run, that there needs to be a reassurance policy. So that, that I think there has to be a, uh, a response to, to, to the crisis. And that, and that response probably has to take the form of uh, injecting money in the economy, of helping, you know, of helping people face these, 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 these energy bills. I think in the, in the medium to longer term, that, I think, you know, for a, someone like Liz Truss, clearly there are, there are different varieties of, of conservative philosophy. And I think, in a sense, we, we probably need to know a little bit more. We need to know a little bit more about the, uh, this, you know, the, the, the anchor that steers her action without, you know, going back again in terms of the, uh, you know, her, her, um, her, her background. It's clear that, and, and here the, the, the Thatcher comparison is interesting because Thatcher, you know, she did have this famous phrase, there is no alternative, and she did actually believe it, in a sense. I mean, she actually had a path, she stuck to it, she mapped it out. I think we're not sure yet, at least, what that path will be for, for Liz Truss. I think, I think it has to be one that's based on a, uh, and this is where I might, I might differ with the previous speaker, but I think it has to be one that's based on um, getting the public finances in some sort of order, uh, bringing down, you know, be, being sure that the... Uh, <coughs> Well, the longer-term future of the economy is safeguarded by by seriously, seriously tr controlling the nature of uh, debt and deficit. And um, after a short period uh, of probably adopting a language based on uh, rigor, based on the need for uh, the, the British people to come together and uh, face a, a very, very unprecedented set of circumstances. That language of truth uh, offers her a way forward. I think that it, you know, it, it, it's going to be a step from where she is at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh well, in, in another mm. poll, um, most, <coughs> I think uh, 50 to 60 percent of, um, of the uh, uh, the UK people, they, they think that, um, you know, UK is in decline. Yeah. And, um, but uh, Liz Truss has some grand ambitions um, to, um, to move UK from a low-growth um, economy 
um, to a better yeah. future. You, you think she'll be able to do that? I think, I think you know, what, what, in, in a way, what are the instruments open to her? That, that's an interesting question. And I think, in a sense, that, you know, moving to a low-growth economy, well, presumably the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the recipe will be a lower tax regime, will be uh, 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 moving more firmly in, in the sense of uh, more deregulation, of uh, loosening up on things like uh, data security. Now, all of these things are, uh, provide one way forward. <clears throat> I'm not sure how feasible they are with it within this time frame, um, and I think they're going to be. You know, will she have the time to address these, given the immediate uh, necessity, which is to uh, to face down this energy uh, and inflation crisis? Uh, I'm not sure that you know that could be the campaign for the next election. But whether she's going to have the chance to do that in the next two years, I have personally uh, some doubts on that. Mm -hmm. uh, Mark O'Neill, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, Britain is in decline. It's true. Uh, the, the decision to leave uh, the EU uh, was not a good decision economically. Um, you know, you're leaving the world's largest single market. Uh, it's, cut, it's cut percentage points off the UK GDP growth. Now, the promise of Brexit was that by leaving the EU, Britain will be able to negotiate favorable trade deals with the, the other big economies in the world, which is the USA, Brazil, India, China, uh, you know, because it can negotiate the deals on its own without having them negotiated by, by Brussels, which is in charge of trade policy. But this has not happened. And, um, you know, Britain, has, uh, the government's been unable to replace the, the, the growth provided by the EU by alternative markets. OK, Mark, uh, hold that thought, please. We're going to uh, take a break for the news, but we will resume uh, this discussion and that very point uh, when we come back at three minutes past. Um, in the meantime, uh, thanks very much to uh, Conservative Party supporter Keith Moody. Mark O'Neill and Professor Alistair Cole are going to stay with us. Um, a quick look at the weather. Uh, mainly fine, very hot during the day. Um, currently it's 30 degrees. Humidity is at 59%. The red fire danger warning and very hot weather warnings are in effect. Listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And this morning, uh, in our main topic, uh, we're talking about the new uh, UK Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss, who was the Foreign Secretary. She won the Conservative Party leadership election. And later today, she's due to see the Queen at, uh, at Balmoral in Scotland uh, to be formally appointed the new uh, Prime Minister. We have with us on the line Professor Alistair Cole, who's head of the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University, and Mark O'Neill, uh, author and China analyst. A bit later in the programme as well, we're going to be talking about the rules and regulations for learning to ride a motorcycle. That's uh, after that serious accident on Sheko Road on Sunday morning. Um, um, Mark O'Neill, uh, just before the news there, uh, we were talking about uh, Liz Truss' uh, relations with the uh, European Union. Uh, do you want to pick up uh, where, where you left off? Yeah. As I say, the, the, one of the promises of Brexit was that uh, the UK would be able to negotiate big trade deals with the other major economies in the world outside the EU, and this has not happened. And one good example is, is China, because, of course, 
Um, China is an extremely promising economy. There's, uh, it's, it's the third largest trading partner of the UK. Mm-hmm. It accounts for 7.3% of total trade with the UK. So it's a very promising uh, partner to sign a trade deal with. But what has happened is that in the last four years, the deterioration, uh, relations between Britain and China have greatly deteriorated. And uh, this trust has been at the forefront of making uh, British policy as trade secretary, then foreign secretary. Uh, We know well what the issues are. It's Hong Kong, it's Xinjiang, it's Taiwan. And during the campaign and before the campaign, a trust was very outspoken on these issues. So I see no likelihood of an improvement and certainly no possibility of a trade deal with, with China. And there is a huge uh, contradiction between the political and, dyna- uh, uh, political and diplomatic relations and the trade relations, because, you know, the British economy is greatly interrelated with that of China. China is, is an enormous exporter of clothes, consumer goods, office machinery, um, antibiotics, antivirals. I mean, many of the equipment used to test covid in the, United, in the United Kingdom comes from China. Um, Ch- China is also a substantial investor in the UK, and this is why David Cameron and, and, and uh, Osborne in the 2015, that's why they spoke about the golden era, mm. because they wanted China to become a, a huge investor in the UK. And because of the deterioration in political and di- diplomatic relations, this investment is, is slowing down. So... Uh, I, I don't see how this can be improved, and the Ukraine war is making it worse because, uh, as I say, Truss has been very outspoken about Ukraine, and they, she sees, uh, as I say, not, China is not taking part in the war, but it's a strong supporter of Putin. Uh, China is the greatest economic beneficiary of the war because it's it's being able to buy at discounted rates oil and gas. It's being able to export to Russia many goods which formerly were bought from Europe and North America, but they're not now. So China is benefiting from the war, and uh, President Xi is very close to President Putin. Now, as you know, in Europe and North America, Putin is regarded as Putler. That's the phrase they use, uh, you know, a mixture of Putin and Hitler. I mean, he's absolutely despised as the devil incarnate. So from the European point of view, any leader who is close to Putin uh, is not a good person. Mm. Uh, uh, Professor Cole, um, Mark mentioned there the the declaration of the golden era in 2015 when uh, uh, President Xi was on a state visit to to Britain. David Cameron took him out to the local pub near Chequers, the UK Prime Minister's uh, country seat. So, um, is there any way, do you think, is it possible or what would need to happen in order to improve uh, uh, improve relations? I mean, not necessarily getting back to uh, what it was in 2015, but to move on from where we are at the moment. Well, I think so. I mean, I think certainly those, you know, that, that golden era, so to speak, uh, under Cameron, um, was, was clearly a high, you know, a high point of uh, 
of, of UK-China relations. Um, things have moved on since then. Obviously, uh, things have moved on uh, here in Hong Kong, but but also in relation to uh, to Brexit and so on. So I think I think those, those days are not going to come back soon. But I think I think one key issue for the future. Looking at the UK government, and I'll just I'll limit myself to the UK side for the moment. I, I, I basically agree with most things that, that, that Mark said there. Uh, but looking at the UK side, I think one of the challenges that face the UK government, well, I think the first one is to restore trust, actually. It's to restore trust in government internally, and it's also to restore, I suppose, trust with one's main partners, be they uh, allies or indeed strategic competitors. Now, it might sound a bit strange to talk about trust with strategic competitors, but, but clearly, uh, at least more perhaps more predictable relations. I think, I think the second thing is that, you know, there are strong interdependencies, uh, nonetheless, between, between the, uh, the, 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 these countries. Um, uh, and, and those, you know, economics does, under, you know, ultimately it underpins uh, political dynamics. It doesn't determine them, but it certainly uh, underpins them. You know, there's, 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 there will be a relationship between the UK uh, and China. Uh, that, that relationship will exist. Um, it, it exists, obviously, but, I mean, the, the fundamental economic, you know, economic underpinning is such that, you know, that, 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 that will carry on. And so I think, in a way, the uh, get back to 2015, probably not, not least because it was associated very much with Cameron, who was then subsequently somewhat um, dis, um, uh, dis, disavowed by history, if you like, by, by, by losing the, the, calling the referendum on Brexit and losing it. Um, so I think, I think it's going to be, you know, it, it's partly a question of time. Uh, I think for the, the conflict, again, I agree with uh, the previous speaker there, it is actually very difficult for a Western leader. And here, I think one thing we should signify is that the UK, in spite of Brexit and everything, is in some sense, you know, speaking uh, in, in the context of a larger community of nations within Western, you know, Western Europe and, and the US, sharing most, if not all, uh, uh, positions on the, on the conflict in Ukraine. So I think in a way that you, you, Britain's perhaps a bit less isolated than it might be uh, in some respects. But certainly in relation to China, there, there's going to need to be, I think, uh, a, a, you know, a period of, um, of, uh, of reassessing and realizing common interests uh, before uh, and you, but they won't go back to 2015. Okay. Do, do you think um, Liz can act a little bit like Biden in the U.S., i.e. keeping a, a studied distance from, you know, a lot of political gestures and also, you know, discuss the, have trade discussions at the back? Yeah, I think, well, quite possibly. I mean, I think in a sense, and again, I agree with the previous speaker, what, what, what she has to do really is I think she has to, to some extent, to succeed as a prime minister, she has to some extent to... Uh, to start off by changing her political style, uh, or at least by by moderating it, I think she has to become more uh, diplomatic in a sense. Uh, of course, trade negotiations need to carry on, uh, and I agree that you know, in a way, the Rolls Royce of trade agreements might well have been the, the, the European Union. But you know, to, to, to replicate those trade agreements, and, and negotiations need to take place. And so, I think you know, there has to be. Uh, you know, not an explicit double language, but there, there has to clearly be an, uh, an attempt to calm things down in some respects and to negotiate uh, on, those, uh, on those important, uh, uh, extremely important uh, uh, economic issues. You know, what's interesting with uh, politics is 
a crisis can make someone. And I come back a little bit here to what the first speaker was saying. I mean, in a way, we don't really know Liz Truss, actually. She's only now becoming prime minister. She's zigzagged. She's occupied various other functions, but we don't really know her. So now, uh, you know, the crisis, in a way, can have a transformative effect. Uh, and for the, for the sake of her and for her country, I, I think it's, uh, it's to be hoped that this will happen in this case. Okay, uh, email here from a uh, listener, uh, uh, Mark Pinkston, who we know well, says, uh, as a political commentator, I think uh, Liz Truss will do a good job cleaning up domestic issues. But my concern is her foreign policy. Much will depend on her choice of foreign secretary and whether or not she or he or she has an independent mind and not rely on misinformation from the intelligence agencies. Trust is anti-China, which does not augur well for this part of the world. Um, Mark O'Neill, what do you think uh, about the appointment of, of, uh, of a foreign secretary? How important is that going to be for international relations? Well, I, I think uh, Mark Pinson is absolutely right. I mean, Trust has been very outspoken on Xinjiang, on Taiwan, and on Hong Kong, you know, her attitude is, is anti-China. So the, the position of Beijing is equally uh, antagonistic. Um, Beijing's view is that the UK had a good policy toward China under Cameron, and since then it's become um, like a poodle of the United States. And in the interest of trying to get a, a good trade deal with the U.S., it's mimicked the U.S. in all its policies, and it's lost its independence. And that uh, for trust to reassess, to remodel relations with China, it's got to break off this dependency with, with the United States. Well, this, this isn't going to happen. So, um, I, yeah, I really can't see any way how relations with China will uh, improve um, in, in the short term. Uh, you know, these uh, human rights issues are very uh, intense, and they're very intense in the media, they're very intense in the British Parliament. So although it's in Britain's economic interests to, to, to separate them from the trade and investment issues, uh, I think it's going to be very difficult to do. And equally, for Chinese companies, uh, they watch carefully the relations between Beijing and the governments of the countries where they invest. So initially, uh, London was a very attractive place for Chinese companies, especially state companies, to go because they saw that relations were good. Well, now that the relations are deteriorating, Chinese companies are thinking again. And of course, if you put your headquarters in Frankfurt, in Paris, in Dublin, you're in the the EU. If you put your headquarters in London, then you're outside the EU, and that's uh, an additional disadvantage. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't see any sign of improvement on the trade investment front. Uh, just going back a little bit, uh, talking about relations with the European Union. I mean, uh, um, a sticking point at the moment is the the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol. Uh, you know a thing or two about Northern Ireland. How, how, do, you, how do you expect things to uh, pan out there? Well, I, I'm afraid my point of view is very much with the EU on this side. I mean, Northern Ireland business is very happy with the Northern Ireland Protocol because it gives them access to the EU market. It also gives them access to the UK market. So, 
They're the only place in the whole of Europe which has unlimited access to both markets. So they're, they're very, mu very much in favour. It is only due to the opposition of the DUP, which is the, 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 the largest unions, uh, yeah. unionist party in Northern Ireland, that Truss is doing this. But the DUP does not represent the majority of Northern Ireland voters. They voted 56% for, for staying in the EU. And they don't even represent all the Protestant voters either, because the Protestant vote is now divided between several unionist parties and also the Alliance Party. So uh, if Liz Truss asked my opinion, I would say that it, it would be a major mistake to rip up the protocol. It will enrage Brussels. Uh, I don't know what kind of revenge uh, Brussels will take, but Brussels is not in a mood to be accommodating toward Britain. Um, you know, and this protocol was signed, you know, by Boris Johnson, the British government. It was an undertaking of the British government. So you are tearing up something that you signed only a few years ago. So uh, I hope that she will be so busy with these domestic matters, with energy and um, inflation and these other economic problems, that she'll put the Northern Ireland Protocol to one side and, 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 and not change it. Okay, well, we'll see what happens in the uh, coming months and years. Uh, two years to go till the next uh, election in the UK. But uh, uh, thank you both uh, very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, that was Mark O'Neill, uh, author and uh, China analyst, and Professor Alistair Cole, head of the Department of Government and International Studies at Hong Kong Baptist University. It is now uh, 9.17 you're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of the programme this morning, we're going to be switching our attention to another topic, and uh, that is the rules and regulations for learning to ride a motorcycle. Uh, this after the serious accident that occurred on Sheko Road on Sunday morning. Uh, we're now joined uh, on the line uh, by Paul Zimmerman, Southern District Councillor and CEO of Designing Hong Kong. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us again. I know you were with us uh, yesterday, but uh, um, for listeners who may be wondering, uh, Paul, of course, wears many hats as well as being Southern District Councillor and CEO of Designing Hong Kong, which I mentioned, uh, um, paragliding we can talk about, and, uh, and motorcycling as well, because uh, um, often see you on a motorcycle. I, um, I, I assume that's your main form of transport, yeah? Yeah, it has been my main form of transport for the last 40 years. Mm. Okay, so in terms of learning to ride a motorcycle, I mean, it's obviously different from learning to drive a car. Um, are the rules and regulations uh, adequate at the moment, or do they need changing or tightening, or what do we need to do to make, uh, make it safer for all road users? Well, I mean, motorcycling is inherently a dangerous sport, um, and the understanding for that you know, has to be instilled on those who start, uh, start running motorbikes. And I'm not sure whether the, uh, the training, you know, it's, it's very much focused on, you know, the kind of basic handling of a motorcycle, doing your eight point, uh, your eight turns, and then, um, and, and the rules of the road in general. But the experience of riding the bike and knowing how to ride a bike safely, 
I'm not sure that that understanding is, is really uh, instilled on, on, on those who go out on the motorbike. And so what happens is they really learn on the road. Uh, and our roads are not very forgiving, especially the roads that are very popular with motorcycles. So how does it work then? So you, you acquire a motorbike, you can just get on it, put on a learner plate and, and ride off or, or what? No, you, you know, you need to get your learner plate, so you've got to get some basic time on the motorcycle, right. uh, on these, uh, the, uh, the education facilities, and then you can apply for your learner plate, and then you can go out with the learner plate. Um, I don't think it's, it, 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 it's, it's wrong in principle in terms of the time and, and, the, and the learning. I think it's the what they learn um, and what the instructors focus on, I think, is, is, is more of an issue. Paul, do, do they have to get uh, pass, pass an examination uh, just like uh, other vehicle drivers? Yes, they have to do examinations. You have to go out to do your routes and then monitor whether you do everything right. And then you have to pass. You have to do your exam to make sure that you demonstrate you know the rules of the road and the, the rules of all the regulations that are out there. But what we really have is, is you know, it's, uh, the motorcycles really attract um, young people to go out and um, and explore Hong Kong, and, and they explore. And Hong Kong has very unforgiving roads that are extremely inviting. So it is Route Twisk. Brightspool Road and Shekel Road are inherently, you know, are used a lot for, for the Sunday morning ride and mm. go out on the weekend. Um, but those, those roads are not easy to ride. The, uh, you know, the camber is not necessarily right in all the turns. Um, turns tighten up in the middle of the turn, so uh, you'll, you'll find yourself first going too fast for the turn itself. And, and getting to know those roads takes time. Um, and so we, you know, I've, I've looked at the accidents on Sheko Road, for example, I and mean, we have had um, in 12 months, starting July 2021, ending June 2022, we had basically uh, one accident a month with a motorcycle and two are dead. So, all um, in the Sheko, all in the Sheko area. No, this is just a Sheko Road. This is, I've, I've just looked at, at accidents on Sheko Road, which is from the roundabout, um, and the Titan Road, the roundabout down to Sheko. On that section alone, once mm. a month, uh, there is a serious motorcycle accident, and, um, and out, of the, out of the 12 average uh, last year, two people are dead, two riders are dead. Mm. And the average age... Uh, involved in those accidents is 28 years old, with the oldest only being 33, and um, the youngest is 25. And then, exactly 25, there is three 25-year-olds mm. that that were involved in the accident, or yeah. which one died. Right, Paul. You said that the the roads are uh, unforgiving uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, what about drivers? You have been on the road with your motorcycle for so many years. Are the drivers friendly to you, or you don't really care because you are a seasoned kind of motorcyclist? Yeah, well, I have to. It, 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 that's absolutely true. I have to be careful how I express myself. But I think because I've been on the bike for so long, and and you've seen all these roads many times. Shaker Road, I've been on for forty years. Um, but in, in general, if you if you hold the middle of the lane. Um, you know, cars do fine. I mean, my, my biggest worry is always in the tunnel, 
that they see the lights of the vehicle in front of me, but they don't see me. Um, and so I always make sure um, I always make sure by to brake slightly and to see whether they respond to my red lights when I'm in a tunnel uh, to make sure they're there and not watching, looking at their phone. Um, but no, in general, I think it's fine. But but the roads are busy, and um, you have to get used to some of the driving styles in Hong Kong, which what I call there is a tendency to drift from one lane in another and to feel your way across, and especially taxi drivers and uh, that uh, that are on the road a lot, they have that they do that, and they may not signal their lane change, and they just feel their lane change, and you have to you have to stand your ground as a motorcyclist uh, quite firmly and, and maintain your lane and. Um, honk or otherwise make noise to make sure they're aware. But I, so it's a busy road. Uh, but, but our roads are busy, so I think that's that's generally challenging. But I think where the accidents really occur, and the police will have to come in and, and, and look at that, is on those popular roads that uh, for going for a tour. Uh, and that Shaco Road, Route Twisk, and and Brightspool Road are definitely three of them. And uh, the Shaco Road has very short. Uh, turns that tighten up in the middle of the turn. And the government has put a lot of road signage around them, but they give this whole sense of comfort. Um, so you have a feeling you're guided, but it doesn't tell you everything about that road. So you might speed up uh, too much as this lady did. I mean, she went through that corner, but exactly where the corner tightens up, she found herself um, going too fast. And she probably saw the car coming and looked at the car rather than inside of the turn and uh, drifted out of, of the lane. Yeah. Uh, it has been suggested, you may have heard in our news, that there should be uh, better guides uh, for which roads are suitable and not suitable uh, for learner riders. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, I mean, every road has, has challenges, so I'm not sure that that is... But it, I, I think what we have here is roads are very popular with uh, morning riders and, uh, and, and, and basically young riders to, uh, that are inexperienced and find themselves out of, um, out of space on these, on these turns. And I think that Chaco Road, where we had one ex- serious accident basically a month, and that's just um, uh, with motorcyclists. There is also other cars that are out of, out of space on that road. Uh, the... Um, I think we can slow down the traffic there. There might be uh, good reasons to put some speed limits up um, uh, on that road, or even speed bumps to uh, to slow traffic um, and uh, and put and, and therefore and uh, that could be a good uh, good call for that uh, because I mean, I mean I've suggested in the council several times that uh, we should post um, the accident rates with a large sign at the start and the end of the road. Uh, clearly saying, you know, you, uh, last month somebody died here, you know, drive safe, safely. I think the, the, the kids that go out on, for fun on that road, they've got to be aware that it's, a, that it's, it, it's not a racing road. Uh, the turns are, uh, uh, are unforgiving. But would just a sign uh, nudge the behaviour and change behaviour of these young motorcyclists? Or do you think that uh, we should follow what Singapore is doing? I understand that uh, in Singapore, the transport authority there, they they require the, the young riders uh, to do more practices uh, in an indoor setting uh, with uh, like virtual reality and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it might be a little bit of gimmick, but... Uh, they get more chance to practice uh, in a safe environment before going out there. 
Yeah, I think that's, that's, that, that could be uh, one way, but definitely the, uh, the instructors in Hong Kong, they've got to spend more time on, uh, on the dangers of the road. Um, and, uh, and, you know, specifically the, the, the attraction and the excitement of Hong Kong's fantastic roads with the beautiful views and uh, a nice, nice opportunities for long rides and a cup of coffee afterwards in, in one of the, the street stalls in Blythepool or in, in Chaco. Um, it, it attracts a lot of people, but to, to educate the, the young riders on the dangers of those roads, specifically uh, the, the, the risk of being, um, being going too fast in those uh, turns and the, the fact that those turns tied up, tie, uh, tied enough in the middle of the turn. So you may come in, specifically this turn where the lady went out of control. Her view would have been the little car park on the side and she made herself comfortable but only at the very last minute when the turn tightens to the left, um, she, uh, she found herself out of speed. She had, she had no expectation. I know that turn quite well. I'm, I'm coming down uh, that turn a lot. Um, and um, it tightens up surprisingly fast uh, in the middle of the turn. So, and, and the sign is on the side of the road disappears because there is a little car park where there is no signs. So it's, uh, it could be surprising. But I think that the education has to be improved uh, from the instructors in terms of the actual situation of the road rather than the rules and the, uh, the, the mechanics of the motorcycling and the mechanics of doing your turns and, and, uh, and, the, and the, 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 roads of the, the, the rules of the road, the, what are the laws and, the, and what are the signboards that you have to know. I think they have to focus more on the actual riding on the roads Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for uh, joining us uh, once more on the programme this morning. Uh, That was uh, Paul Zimmerman, Southern District Councillor and CEO of Designing Hong Kong. Um, Just a a quick uh, email before we bring the programme to a close uh, on this issue. Um, This email uh, from uh, uh, Jim says, uh, regarding the issue of the motorcycle accident on Sheko Road, those who are familiar with Sheko Road know there is rampant speeding by supercars and motorcycles on weekend mornings causing danger to all road users as well as noise pollution. This issue could be addressed relatively easily through the installation of speed cameras and regular patrolling by police at times where this dangerous road activity regularly occurs, i.e. the mornings of weekends and public holidays. Thank you. That's from Jim. And uh, also um, on our Facebook, if you care to look on our Facebook, uh, uh, Facebook on our... Sorry, Backchat... Uh, sorry, Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, a couple of messages uh, on there, one uh, from uh, listener Les about uh, uh, riding motorbikes, and um, I haven't got time to, to read it all, but you can go there and uh, take a look. It says the capacity and power of the bike uh, needs to be limited for new motorcyclists. Okay.